Thank you for listening to a podcast of Rock Church. For more information on sermons and events, connect with us online at rockchurchnow.com or search Rock Church Now in the App Store. Let me tell you a story, a story about my land and my people. The Yupik, the Yupak, the Aleut, and the Athabascan, the Haida, the Denina, and the Clinket. These are my people, each uniquely beautiful. For thousands of years, we have been proud of our heritage, a culture that has helped us thrive in one of the world's harshest environments. But there is more to the story. This is also a story of many of my people being in need of hope. It's a story of generations becoming trapped in alcoholism, depression, suicide, abuse, and bitterness. Our only hope is Jesus. And many of my people are desperately in need of an encounter with him. In Alaska, there are more than 100 villages without a consistent gospel presence. These are people in need of the hope of Christ. But you see, the places left in this world that remain unreached and underserved by the gospel are the hard places. But Christ's command remains, go. Go and make disciples. Go to the ends of the earth. Go to the forgotten, hidden by remoteness, to the lost and to the neglect. But who will go? Who will float the rivers of Alaska? Who will fly in bush plains to isolated villages on the tundra? Who will go to the lost and to the forgotten? You see, we need more. We need more called, we need more committed, and we need more sent. But how can just one more person make a difference in a land as vast as Alaska? It's as simple as bringing what you already have. In Acts 3, Peter meets the desperate need of the crippled beggar with the words, silver and gold I do not have, but what I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, walk. Instantly the man is healed and his life is changed forever. One man's hopeless situation was forever changed because someone brought what they have. The thought of reaching a village by yourself can seem daunting. But a team trained, working together, can impact a community and can change lives. But how are teams possible? Well, every year in Alaska, hundreds of jobs become available in the villages. Jobs that can open the door for marketplace missionaries. Imagine if college graduates from around the nation made the decision to use their degree to be trained for cross-cultural marketplace missions in order to go into these villages to share the gospel, make disciples, and help write a new chapter in the story of the native people of Alaska. Peter said, what I have, I give. God uses those who bring what they have. What do you have? You have a degree, you have a career, you have a life, but most importantly, you have Jesus Christ. What if all of these things that you already have were given to make a difference. Will you give what you have to change the story of Alaska? Amen, that is so powerful. 
And I don't want to take up Paul's time by talking about how powerful that was. I just have the honor and the privilege to introduce our missionary, Paul Burkhardt, who is Detroit born and bred. So let's give a warm rock welcome to our missionary, Paul Burkhardt. I'll give you a hug. God bless you. It's good to be back in Michigan. Um, I'm so excited to be with you. Thank you to Pastor Steve and his wife and Pastor Angelo and Kim. It's, yeah, I'm excited to be a part of your mission's emphasis this year. Uh, and God is doing good things. Uh, on top of just being a part of this, it's great to come back to summer weather. It was negative five when I left uh, Alaska a couple days ago. And uh, we got like eight inches of snow, which last year we had 120 inches in my town that we live in. And so this is awesome. Thank you for the 70 degree weather. The wind is great. I don't care. It's awesome. Thank you, Jesus. Um, I want to just take a minute to let you know, uh, we've got a little table out there. There's prayer cards on it. There's also some stickers and a map of Alaska. Uh, grab a prayer card, stick it in the fridge, in a Bible, in a book, hide it somewhere so when you find it in like the silverware drawer, you'll say pray for those crazy people in Alaska and help them, you know, sort out what God's called them to do. It will be an incredible blessing to us. Um, I want to take just a minute to catch you up on what God is doing in Alaska um, and give you a little bit of brief background before we jump into God's word. Um, my family and I actually served as world missionaries before he called us to Alaska. For a decade, we served in Southeast Asia in a closed communist nation, and I'll tell a couple stories about that. But while we were there, we were tasked with pioneering the church. It was a, a nation that is statistically unreached, 0% Christian, and so we were there in secret. We were there to establish the house church, to make disciples raise them up and help them make disciples of their own people. And after a decade of working in this nation and, and seeing God do miraculous things and pioneering in multiple cities and, and the community was growing, the Lord miraculously spoke into my wife and I's life and said, it's time for you to be done. It's time for you to go from Asia to Alaska. Now, I'll tell you this. It made zero sense to us, and, and that story is a lot longer than we have time for this morning, but what I can promise you is, is that God rarely makes sense, that his call and his direction is usually not logical. And when he speaks to us, we have but one response to be obedient. And so when we were leaving Asia and heading to Alaska, going from 114 degrees to negative 56, from languages and shorts and flip-flops to snow gear that you cannot imagine, right? The Lord spoke three things to us. He said essentially these three simple things. Number one, what you helped start in this nation is not going to stop. And nearly a decade later, we look back at that country and we see that the team that we pioneered, the, the missions and the churches that are there are continuing to go. In fact, I was on the Joshua Project just a few months ago, which we were talking about the persecuted church. And this nation is a persecuted church where we were at. But I'm looking at this Joshua Project website, which tracks unreached people groups around the world. And statistically, 20 years ago, this nation had 0% Christianity, and it's moved all the way up to nearly 4%, which means that God is doing something in this nation, and they've moved off the unreached people groups list because we believe that once you hit 2% of a population, there's the capacity for a people to reach their own people. God is continuing to do stuff around the world. Listen, church, amen. 
The second thing that he told us is that we were not going to go to Alaska alone. Amen, right? And so we had three young couples that were crazy enough and called by God that showed up in the, the coldest city in North America and hung out in a basement and began to pray that God would start a discipleship movement in this state. The third thing that he said was that the things that you learned in Asia, you were supposed to bring to Alaska. Now, that has been lived out in so many different ways, but if I had to put it in just two words, it would simply be this, reproducing discipleship. You see, in Asia, we couldn't do this. We couldn't gather in this way, but what we could do is make a friend, lead them to Jesus, help them grow in maturity, and teach them how to reach their family and their friends for Christ as well. And believe it or not, that's an effective model. Jesus did it, right? And so what we've seen God do in, in Alaska over the last nine years is nothing but miraculous. Over 600 salvations, 400 baptisms, like six different locations across the state. We've got 47 full-time ministers in the last eight years have been raised up in this state that are now scattered across. Come on. that are now scattered across the state working in the rural and the indigenous places. But as I said in that video, we need more. Church, we need to be praying and believing. Jesus' plea to his disciples was pray that the Lord would send harvesters into the labor field, right? Laborers into the harvest field. I got to push a, a little disclaimer right here. It is approximately 6.30 a.m. in Alaska. And so if I don't make sense this morning, come to the second service, we'll be sorted, okay? All right. So this is where we are at. We're going to uh, step into this morning's service, and I want to, you to begin to prepare your hearts and your minds, because even though we're going to tell stories, I don't believe that this morning is about Alaska. It's about what God wants to do in your life. And we didn't come here to go through a routine or check a box for the week. We came because we believe that there is a God that is alive and well, amen? That we can have an encounter with him, that he can speak to us, and that we can respond. So let's begin with prayer. Jesus, we come to you right now, and we ask, Lord Jesus, that your spirit and your presence would continue to be with us. Lord, that you would break down barriers and walls in our hearts and in our minds, Lord, that you will soften us and allow us to be good soil so that when your word is planted in our lives, it takes root, it grows, it matures, and it flourishes. And Lord, we know that we serve a missionary God, a God that sent Jesus from heaven to earth so that we could be in right relationship with you, reconciled with you, O oh Lord. Lord, we believe and know that it is your heartbeat that the world would be able to be reconciled, not just this community and this church or this state, but that your word says that you see the entire world and you long and you plead and wish that none would be lost. And God, we have an opportunity to participate in your global mission, Lord Jesus. Help us, oh God, in your name, amen. A few years ago, when we were still in Asia, I guess it's more than a few now, probably close to a decade, we were there in secret, and as a result, we had day jobs. Some of you have day jobs, and you know that your real purpose is to serve Jesus and to make disciples, right? And my day job was that I served as an education consultant for the government of Laos. I actually worked with the education minister. We developed the Head Start program for the nation essentially kindergartens, and so we would go into extreme rural areas. We would uh, do an assessment, build a building, train teachers, and start kindergartens. And every year as we built these 
schools and these locations, uh, the, we would come back to do medical clinics and assessments with the Lao government. And so each year we kind of did these routines and, and it was near the end of our time in Asia that we were going uh, on these trips and we would bring medical doctors from the U.S. and nurses and they would partner with doctors and nurses from the nation and, and we would travel. And typically we would spend a half a day in each location. We would work with the kids and then the village knew that they could come and see the doctors and the nurses once we were done. But we came to this town called Nyatlian. Say that, right? Nyatlian, exactly. Nyatlian literally means the top of the mountain. And it's one of the most inhospitable places I've ever been. It's a miserable place to live. There's no water. You can't grow anything. And, and yet there's this community. And the, the government decided that this would be a good place for a boarding school. And so we helped establish this school. And it was always a, a difficult place. And, and instead of a half a day, we would usually spend two days here because there were a couple hundred kids, not just kindergartners, but all the way through high school. I think you guys have a, a picture of of that. Oh, there it is. You guys are way ahead of me. And, and so this is that location. And so the kids are lining up and they're going in to see the doctors. They're doing well child checkups. They're getting vitamins. We're doing teeth, kind of the whole routine. And I'm one of the few translators. And so I'm running from the pharmacy to the doctors, to this place, to that. And as I'm going across that flat dirt pitch that the kids play soccer on, I look off into the hills on a cattle trail, and I see a lone individual walking, and she's carrying something. Didn't catch my attention. Other than that, I ran off to my next thing, and, and pretty soon, one of my staff members came to me, and they tapped me on the shoulder, and they said, hey, you have to come here. We have a situation. Now, I scurried across the courtyard, came into what they call a schoolroom. We would not put livestock in it. It's a bamboo hut with dirt ground, cinder block walls, no lighting, no electricity. I come in, I duck through the door, and my eyes adjust to the darkness, and I see that that young lady that I saw walking across the hills is sitting in front of our doctors, and the doctors look at me and say, we need to do something. I assess the situation, have the conversations, discover that she's 17 years old and that this is her first child, a boy. She tells me that he's not been doing well. The doctors say he's got pneumonia. She says that she's not been producing milk. The doctors tell me that he's starving. See, her solution was that they would take dry grains of rice and they would grind them with a mortar and a pestle and they would add a little bit of water and they would spoon feed this six-month-old child. See, this is a place in the world where you don't go down to the corner store and get a bottle of carnation and, and somehow sort out the situation. The doctors looked at me and said, this child will not live through the night. You have to get him to the hospital. The hospital was nine-hour drive away through the mountains down to the capital city near the border of Thailand on the Mekong. I turned to her, and in her language, I spoke to her, and I said, listen, we need to go right now. My staff, me, you, this child, we're getting in my car, we're driving, we're going to go to the hospital. And she began to shake her head no. She began to look at me and say, no, you don't understand. My husband doesn't even know I'm here. I've walked an hour and a half through the hills to come to this clinic because I heard you might be able to help us. And I said, there's nothing we can do for your child. He has to go to the hospital. She says, I cannot leave. They don't even know that I'm here. I said, there's not much that we can do for you. She stood up and she held and cradled her child. She walked out of that classroom and began walking across that dirt pitch. I remember coming to the doorway, staring 
as she walked away and tears began to flow down my eyes. I began to cry out to the Lord saying, how is this right? How is this fair? See, my 12-year-old was like two years old then, right? And I remember thinking about how fat and sassy he was at home and he had toys to play with and food to throw away. And I started to just cry out to God and I said, this is not right. The Holy Spirit came in that moment and gave me courage and a thought. I ran across that soccer pitch. I tapped her on the shoulder. I took all the money that was in my pocket and I put it in her hand. And I said, your son is worth it. In three days, I will be in the capital city. In three days, I will be there. This is enough money for you and your entire family to travel. We will take care of your son. Your son is worth it. Meet us there in three days. The next three days were some of the most miserable days of my life. Fasted and prayed. And we'll finish the story later. See, this story expresses the burden that we would all have if we encountered someone that was wounded and dying, right? No one would argue with me that we somehow have a responsibility in that moment to intervene, to defend those that are dying from physical ailments. But what about spiritual ignorance? What about spiritual lostness? What about demonic oppression? What is our responsibility in that moment? How many of you believe that we have a soul? Raise your hand. Bold with me. You believe we have a soul. You're wrong. To say that we have a soul means that we are the body. To say that we have some sort of a spirit that is connected to the physical, say that the physical is the reality. But the physical lasts 70, 80, 90 years, whereas the soul, the spirit, lasts in eternity. So in fact, we do not have a soul, we have a body, and we need to change our thinking. Because when we think about this, not one of us would argue with the fact that we need to be desperate to go and rescue those that are physically dying, hurting, and lost. But what about the spiritual? That is the reality that is most real. Romans 5.8 says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Colossians 2.13 says that while we were dead in our sins, Christ intervened and forgave us all our sins. Christ made a way for us to be in relationship with God. But Paul says in Romans 10.14, how can they call on the one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? We have a responsibility to step in and defend those that are destined for spiritual death. So what are we going to do about it? I want us to turn to 2 Samuel chapter 21. It's kind of a funny thing to go to the Old Testament to talk about missions, but I want to look at an Old Testament story. It's little known about a mother named Rizpah that I believe gives us some actions, some things to do that, that will help us understand how to live to defend those that are spiritually dead and dying. Are you with me, church? Okay, I honestly expected a little bit more communication this morning, all right? I know that Pastor Angelo is Italian. I grew up around here. I'm Italian. And so you can, my mom's maiden name was Linda Luigina Diacelli, all right? So you're not going to scare me if you talk to me, all right? It's much easier to preach to people who are with you, all right? So no sleeping. I'm more tired than you are, I promise, all right? 
So 2 Samuel chapter 21, we'll begin reading in verse 1, and then I'll, give some, I'll stop and give some background throughout. But it says, Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? We're going to pause here for just a second because you need to understand what's going on. Because this story doesn't start here. It starts way back with Moses and Joshua. See, when Moses led the people out of Egypt, he wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, and then Joshua led the people of Israel into their promised land, into Israel, right? But when he went into Israel, his command from God was to remove all the people that exist in your promised land. But one of the first things that happens is, is when Joshua goes into the promised land, these people come to him and they deceive him. The Amorites, which the Gibeonites are a part of the Amorites, come and they, they ride on old camels and worn out food, uh, clothes and they have food that's moldy and they say, we're a people from afar away, make a treaty with us, do not annihilate us. And Joshua does not seek the Lord and instead just makes a treaty with them and then it's discovered that the Amorites were in the land of Israel and as a result, they were allowed to live in the land of Israel but they were there to serve the people of Israel. But what we've just read is King Saul, the first king of Israel, became zealous for the land. And his response was to commit a genocide in peaceful times. Let's move on. We're going to skip down to verse 5. It's, they said to the king, so these are the, the Gibeonites, they're talking to the king. They said to the king, the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel... Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. We're going to skip down to verse 8. It says, the king took the two sons of Rizba, the daughter of Ai, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Maholathite. Can anyone say, that's amazing, you just said that clearly. All right. I practice that, like lots. I love that. All right, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord, and the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of the harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Verse 10, then Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, took sackcloth, spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of the harvest until rain fell upon them from heavens, and she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. We're going to come back and finish this story later. Listen, if this is the first time you're reading this verse, you're like, hold up. Seven innocent guys get to be a sacrifice for something his dad did. Most historians and theologians uh, would tell you that likely these seven were the seven that helped perpetuate or, what's the word, uh, commit genocide amongst the people of the Gibeonites. So we do not need to get into all of the justice in this moment. That's actually not the, the focus or the point. But likely, this is a justice moment for these boys being punished for what they had done. And they're not children. These are young men. Okay? What we're talking about this morning is instead what the mother did 
and how she defended the dead in her life that would eventually impact how their memory and what would happen to them in eternity. So let's do this. We're going to look at the four actions of Rizbah, and I believe that if we understand those and we follow those out in our lives, we can defend the spiritually dead in our lives, changing their eternity as well. You with me? Amen. All right, so the first thing that we need to pay attention to this morning, it's really simple. Rizpah loved her dead. The first thing that we see her doing is, is loving them. Now, the scripture doesn't tell us this, like it's not Rizpah loved her boys, but I've got four kids, and it's not far for us to imagine that this is a mother who loved her children, but we can see it on top of that by her actions. She loved her dead, which means she didn't stop loving them once they were dead. Even though they were dead, decaying corpses, even though she would never receive love in return from them, she didn't stop. How many people know that it's not easy to love those that are spiritually dead in your life? Right? Anybody have those people in your world? You know what I'm talking about? I remember when we first got to Asia, and I could tell story after story in Alaska, but once we first got to Asia, we were basically doing exploratory pioneering trips, walking out in the jungles and meeting new people, like random tribal groups. And what I discovered after a few months was that every time we'd walk into a village, we would be honored guests and we would be given the best food that they could provide. Now, these were extremely poor and impoverished people. And, and so the best food meant that they grabbed the chicken that was running around the village. They, they boiled it. They didn't even roast it. They just boiled it. They put it in a pot, they let it cool down and get cold, and then they hacked it into pieces, and they put it in a bowl in front of us, and that was our feast that we got to have. I began to dread dinner every time we went into a village, because as the old guy, I would be given the prime best pieces. And in that culture, the best pieces were the, the neck up and the ankles or the feet down. And so I'd get this bowl with the skin on, comb gobble head, eyes and a beak, looking at me, whacked off, arteries and all sorts of esophagus is hanging out of the bottom of that, and scaly feet. And I'm going, what in the world? And I look over at one of our indigenous people that was with us on our team, and he's like, yeah, that's it, man, you get to eat. And so it became a game. I would go at this thing, and you start peeling off the comb, and it's rubbery, and you're chewing it, and you start cleaning off the the vertebrae, and you start, like, building a skeleton in your bowl, like, I'm, I'm like an archaeologist now, like, this is spectacular, and, and I remember the first time I'm doing this, and, and I go to set the skull, which I have cleaned, like, it's beautiful, it's like a clean skull, and I'm setting it down with his beak, and he just kind of nudges me, and he says, nope, I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, the eyes, you got to eat the eyes, I'm like, oh, okay, here we go, and I put it in my mouth, and I suck out the eyes, and I'm pretty proud in this moment, like, look at what I did. And I'm setting it down, and he goes, nope, the brain. You got to eat the brain. And so with the beak, it goes into the back corner of my mouth, and my molars crack the skull, and that gray matter oozes down my throat. How many people know that is not easy to love? Not easy to love when you walk into a village up in northern Alaska and and they serve you whale that's been sitting in the ground for six months or eight months. Not easy to love when it's negative 56 degrees out, and yet somehow Christ has commanded us to love. I think about 
people in your life, right? Coworkers that mistreat you, neighbors that are just ridiculous and mean. I have a few of those in my life. Uh, the family member that is hateful and unforgiving, right? Love is not easy. Listen to this. Love is not an emotion. In fact, love is a decision of action that is in the best interest of the beloved. It is selfless, sacrificial, and steadfast. We tell our disciples that love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of God and his kingdom, or God and his people, which means my interest does not come into play in the decision that gets made. What is in the best interest of God and his kingdom? question is, is will we love those that are destined for destruction in our lives, or will we, will we live that love out? Will we allow our love to be more than just words? Second thing that Rizba teaches us is simply this, she went to them. If you look in verse 10, it says, Rizba took sackcloth and spread it out for herself on a rock. She could have stayed at home and wept from a distance. She could have been like the other mother and mourned, not going to her children, but Rizba went because she knew something could be done. So often we as Christians hear this, guys. This is not just you. This is me too. So often we as Christians, we do not, we like to stay inside the walls of our church. We like our small groups. We like our Christian friends. We don't like the smelling, the stench of the world. We don't like the, the, the inappropriate words. We don't like the attitude, the culture, the things that they do. And it's much easier, much nicer to just be with ourselves. But Rizba was not afraid of the smell and the stench of her boys. Hear this. She was not afraid of the flies, of the decaying corpses. She went to her children. We need to understand that like Rizbo, if we are going to make a difference in their lives with the spiritually dead, we cannot stay inside the walls of our own church community and mourn the loss from a distance. Let me, uh, I wanna, there's some pictures. I think there's a map I want you to show you guys. Here it is. I think it's just amazing we're praying for the unreached persecuted church this morning, but this is the region of the world that my family and I worked in and um, over here on the right, but every dot represents a community that has uh, basically a community in this part of the world. A quarter of the world lives in this map right here. And every red dot means that there's no known believer or Christian in those communities. And so we've got some green, we've got some orange, yellow, but red. And I look at this map and I start to just be overwhelmed at the sheer number and responsibility of the loss in our world. Go to the next map. So when we were, no, next, I'm sorry, go to the other guy. The guy, yeah. There we go. This guy. So we take our disciples all around the world from Alaska. It's hysterical to watch them go from like crazy cold to these temperatures in these places. But we're raising up ministers and missionaries to change the world in Alaska because we believe we're, it's the greatest place to raise up people to go around the world because they're the toughest that the world has to offer, right? This is, these are tough people. And so we've been walking. We actually walked 100 miles in the Himalayan mountains with backpacks on. And we were going from village to village with one of our old partners from Asia. And we're going around and we come to this village and this is a Buddhist monk that is sitting in a little hut hovel, Right? And I walk in there and I begin to talk to him and speak to him. And what I discover is that he has not left this room for 28 years. You see, the Buddhists believe 
that the only way out of this world, which is suffering, the foundation for Buddhism is suffering. Everything is suffering. And the way that you get out of suffering is the removal of desire, because if you desire something, if you love something, well then, when you can't have it, or when that person breaks your heart, then you suffer. And so their whole belief system is based on this idea that the world is suffering, and as a result, if we can remove suffering from our lives, then we can escape and go to nirvana. And nirvana is not heaven, it is the ceasing of existence. The hope of all of this belief system is just nothingness. The problem with this is he's lived in a room for 28 years escaping suffering, but he's never experienced joy or love or peace or anything that the Lord promises or offers for his life. But let me ask you this. How does this man know about Jesus unless someone goes? 28 years he's been sitting in a room, and unless someone walks in and sits down and talks to him, how does he know? Let's go to the next map. This is my, my home, my calling our burden. This is the map of Alaska. All of these dots represent rural villages of anywhere from 50 to 300 people. They're scattered and disconnected. You get to them by riverboat or bush plane, or you, there's no connectedness to them. You take this map and lay it over the United States. The far right section, those southeast Alaska, would land in Florida. The far left section, the Aleutian Islands, would land in California. You look at our U.S. map, and it's this little box off to the side. If you cut Texas in half, this state is twice as big, meaning Texas becomes the third largest state. It's enormous. It's disconnected. And these people, they've been forgotten. They're out there without running water, without toilets, without electricity, without education, without the hope of Jesus. How do, we, how do they know about him unless someone gets out there and tells him? Let's keep moving. You guys doing okay? Okay. I've been told I'm a little passionate. The third thing that Rispa did is that she fought for them. How many people have heard this statement, I'm a lover, not a fighter? You guys know what I'm talking about? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Right? If you love something, you will. I'm a lover and a fighter. Rizba fought for her boys. Scripture tells us that she did not let the birds of the air touch them by day or the wild animals by night. Listen, I, I'm an avid outdoorsman in Alaska. I was just on an island called the Fognac a couple weeks ago, braving bears and mountains and rivers and weather and all sorts of gnarly stuff. And let me tell you that when the birds of the air come on a carcass, it is nearly impossible to keep them away. They come with, with vengeance. We watched a 10-foot brown bear try to protect an elk carcass from another mountain, and he literally would lay on top of this animal to keep the eagles and the birds from coming and stealing his prey. And this is the picture that we are given in Scripture. We're given this picture of her children who are bodies are bloating, they're decaying in front of her. This is not a short period of time. We're talking about months. Their intestines would have been distended until the point that they literally exploded. The birds of the prey would have come in. The animals at night would have come in. And what we see in scripture is she is literally picking up sticks and she's beating away the birds. 
She's keeping a fire vigil around her boys so that the wild animals don't come in and they drag them off. She was not just willing to go and sit beside them and say, man, I hope you get this figured out. She picked up every opportunity to protect the dead bodies of her children. Think about the emotional struggle that as she watched her boys being displayed as trophies. Think about the constant reminder of her loss. This mother sacrificed for her dead, and they were dead. Now imagine the children of God dying in front of you. Imagine the sons and the daughters that he climbed on a cross for, being scavenged by the devil, lives being torn to pieces. What are we going to do? Are we going to fight? Will we stand in the gap? Will we do everything we possibly can? Will we hold a stick in the night and keep them, defend them from the destructive forces of this world? Will we love them? Will we fight for them? I'll show you this picture. These are some of my friends. So, uh, we went to Alaska with this belief that discipleship could change the world. I don't know, it's in the Bible or something like that. And when we looked at the state of Alaska through a missionary's eyes, we identified that the university was the, the crossroad. So almost every village in Alaska comes to the two, three universities in Alaska. And so the belief when we first were called there was that if we can make disciples at the university, they will disseminate across state. And there is truth in that, but it's been slow. And the Lord gave us a different idea, and you saw that video. It's to raise up men and women who will graduate, who will put their careers on hold and go and become teachers in these rural communities with the intention of pioneering house churches. Because a village of 300 people, you don't need a church building. I'm sorry. You don't need a full-time pastor. You don't need a missionary. What you need is a Christian that loves people. And so these are my friends, kids who graduate from the university, but not just in, in Alaska. These are friends from Texas and Arkansas, and the two in the middle, they're actually my kids. I, they got saved in our ministry in Fairbanks, Alaska. Colin, the guy with the blue shirt, he's an aeronautical engineer. He has a, 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 had a contract with Boeing at one of the bases up in, in Fairbanks. Like His wife grew up in that community. Like this is, These are sharp, incredible people. And... And Colin and Megan, the two in the middle, they got this, this bug in them when they started to go and visit one of our local roadside communities and, and help out with the boarding school there that they wanted to do something with their lives to make a difference. And so they volunteered to, to change their degrees and become teachers. So Colin teaches junior high math in a village called Tuliksac, 358 people, hour and a half boat ride from the closest place you can fly a plane. No running water. No indoor toilets. They have what's called honey buckets. Lovely term, right? You get the idea. They put their buckets out at the side of the door and people come around and collect your buckets in the 300-person community. Their first year in the village, they met this kid named Keenan. And Keenan is uh, in Tuliksac. The statistical graduation rate is less than 10%. 
Basically, it's one student a year graduates. Um, not because there's not there's that few students. It's just because they don't get, they just don't graduate. Life is tough in these places. But Keenan had been one of the graduates, and so he was an aide for Colin and. We, they was their first year there, and I flew in with a, a group of people that were being trained to go into the next cycle, a cohort of people that were going to go out to villages, and, and we were encouraging them and praying over them, seeing their classroom and meeting the people that they'd connected with, and, and Keenan, this 19-year-old kid, was just kind of following us around as we explored the village and met people, and then we were in their house, and we had a Holy Spirit prayer session over them, and, and he's like, what is happening, right? Like, this is crazy, um, and and. Colin comes back, we get in a boat, we go back to Bethel, which is the hub village. That means that it's like a crossroad village. Bethel is about 3,000 people that services 56 different villages. So you have to get to Bethel to get on a plane. If you want vegetables or groceries, you have to get to Bethel. 56 communities called Bethel, their hub. And so, long story short, Keenan's bouncing around with us. We're climbing in this boat, and we've got all these like six, seven, eight, nine-year-olds that are just following us everywhere. And they want to get in the boat because they want to go to Bethel because that's like getting to the big city. And, and so we're like bribing them to stay out of the boat. Bags of chips, candy, all of this stuff. And Keenan's just standing on the bank off by himself. And I notice that we run out of food. We've got all the kids off to the side. We're about to, to launch the boat. And I see him and he's just standing there kind of watching. And I grab an apple out of my bag and I toss it to him. And I said, see you next time, Keenan. He grabs it and he immediately stuffs it in his uh, sweatshirt pocket. Found out later that he hadn't had fresh fruit in over two months. That night, we're back in Bethel. It was a church that we've been transitioning into a ministry center, and we're going. We're having a debrief time. We're interacting, and during that time, Keenan texts uh, Colin. He said, "Hey, tell that crazy guy thanks for the apple." That's me, right? And I just said, "Hey, tell him great. Ask him how his day was." Keenan responds, it was the best day of my life. He said, it was like getting a free trial with what it would be like to have friends. But I can't pay for it, so I guess I will never have it. A few weeks later, well, a few months later, Megan was pregnant. And when I found out they were pregnant, I was like, hey, you're going to have to go to one of the big villages. Hospital's got to be connected. And they just came to me and said, no, 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 no. God's called us to Tulik Center. And we agreed to kind of monitor their situation, but she flew into Fairbanks, gave birth to their baby, was flying back. Colin had had to go back to teach earlier. And as she's in a flight, in a bush plane, you guys know what a bush plane is? It's a tiny little two-seater, three-seater plane. Pilot tells her with her infant, you can, we cannot land. What do you mean? There's an active shooter in the village. What that means is there's a drunk guy running around with a shotgun. He's trying to get into school. And they turned around and they flew back. And, and Colin and the whole school was in lockdown for four or five hours. State troopers, it took them four or five hours to show up, right? You're a long way away from anywhere. Situation was taken care of. That night, I remember getting on a Zoom call with my teams that are out in these villages, and Megan is just weeping, saying, Paul, when it was just Colin and I, it was just Colin and I, we could do this, but, but Naharun, their daughter, Colin is, 
India from India, Indian from India. And his daughter's name is Naharun. And when Naharun, this changes the game. I'm a father, and I'm a very compassionate person, and I started to say, you're right, you need to leave. My wife, if you met her, you'd love her, but she grabbed my thigh, sitting on the couch of my house as we were disconnected from what they were going through, and she simply shook her head no. She said, Paul, what about Kenan? Some of you are reviling at this thought, right? We have to take care of our own. We have to protect our lives. What about Kenan? Who's going to fight for him? I looked at Megan and I said, Megan, if the Lord tells you to leave, we're behind you. What has the Lord told you? She, through tears, shook her head no. And Megan and Cohen not only chose to finish there this year, last year, but they're there this year. And they're planning on staying there as long as the Lord will allow them. See, guys, fighting, there's a cost. The last thing that Rizba teaches us that we need to pay attention to is simply this, Rizba stayed with them. Verse 10 says, from the beginning of the harvest till the rain poured down from the heavens on the body, she stayed. She was not only willing to go, to love, to sacrifice, to protect, she was willing to stay in the fight until something was different. Guys, changing the world is not going to be fast. My wife and I have been ministering to this young lady in our lives for the last eight years. She's been in and around. We've been intentional in relationship and, and connecting with her. And it was just this past Easter, she reached out to us and said, I think I want to go to church. And now she's not only saved, she's on fire with Jesus. And she's dragging my wife to every Bible study in town. Eight years of relationship. Eight years of investment. The average person in Southeast Asia that we saw come to know Jesus took three years of pouring into their lives before they would discover who Jesus was. If we don't stay, nothing will change. We have to determine that like Rizba, we're not going to give up no matter how far gone they may appear. I want to go back all the way to the beginning story quickly um, that I told about that little guy. And, and can we throw up the original picture again? I want to pull that up. I don't, did you guys see this picture? No. Okay. So I just wanted you to see this little guy. He's six months old and weighed, weighed less than eight pounds. If you can see the nurse's finger on the top portion of that scripture, that is his thigh next to it. Three days later, we made it to the capital city, and my staff was going ahead of us, and she called me, and she said, they're here, but the doctors will not treat them. See, they're an ethnic minority. They're a mountain person. They're a tribal person, and we're in the capital city where the people are race. Guys, listen, racism isn't just a problem in the United States. Racism is a problem with humanity, all right? So we're, we're there, 
And I walk into those doctors who I know, who I work with, who have gone on these clinics with me, and I get in their face and I scream at home and I said, you're going to treat this child as if it was my child. Over the next few weeks, we started to see a change in this little guy's life. I'm going to throw up that neck, the last picture that we had. Ended up being three months that we took care of him in that hospital, housed his family, took, fed him, just kind of the whole deal. And after that period of time, uh, they went back up to the mountains. And the last time I heard, he was a 10-year-old boy thriving and doing well. But listen, yeah, amen. Six months later, his mom came to know Jesus. A year later, his dad chose to follow him. Now we know that there is a small house church community up in that mountain tribal village near Nyotling because someone fought for this little guy. Come on, hold up. Do you see it? Do you see the power that God has given us to change the world in which we live? I want to read one more verse. I want to finish this Bible story. I'm going to have Pastor Steve come. We're going to go down to verse 11. It says this. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Ai, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went, and he took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul of Geboa. And he brought up there, from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged together. And they buried the bones of Saul and his son in the land of Benjamin and Zelah in the tomb of Kish, his father. They did all that the king commanded, and after that, God responded to the plea of the land. See, believe it or not, Rizpah changed something. In order to understand what's going on here, you have to realize that these boys that were killed were illegitimate sons. Rizpah was a concubine, a prostitute. They were disconnected from the family. And yet this mother who fought for her boys, who stayed with them until David heard about what was going on, he gathered the bones of those boys, those illegitimate children, together with the bones of the legitimate son and buried them together in the tombs of the king. Do you see the spiritual principle here, guys? This is our story. Do you understand that we are illegitimate children disconnected from our God, who in complete rebellion deserve eternal and spiritual death. And yet somehow, because Jesus Christ came to this earth and fought for us, he came, he stayed, and he fought for each one of us. He loved us. We now have the opportunity to do what? To be buried with the king, to spend eternity with him. This is our story. We have the opportunity bring the spiritually dead with us from around the world.
As you know, for several weeks, we've been letting you know Global Convention comes. As Pastor Peyton said, we have a target of funds we want to raise for missionaries and mission projects on our, our list. And today we wanted to emphasize uh, Paul Burkhart's uh, work and project. So, Paul, if you would come and share uh, what you have going on right now that we're going we're gonna to help with financially. Sure. Um, in the last few months, the Lord has given us kind of a new outpost into rural Alaska. So we've been targeting an area on the, what's called the Kuskokwim River, and our people are isolated and disconnected, and it's super hard to create a network or a community of believers. And it was this summer that um, our leadership, our state leadership, reached out to us and essentially said, we have a property in Bethel. I mentioned Bethel, that hub location. Um, it's a church. It's done well in the past, but for the last 11 years, we've not had uh, fruitful ministry. For the last two years, we've not even been holding services. What do you think God could do with that? And uh, we said, well, uh, we see not only a thriving church, we see a network connection for all of our rural, those 56 villages, but we also see a training center. We see a place where we can raise up indigenous believers and equip them to make disciples with their people in their own locations. I think there's a picture of it there. And so this building is, is phenomenal. Believe it or not, in this isolated village, this is a two plus million dollar facility. Um, it's pretty amazing, but it's literally falling into the ground. Uh, this is the tundra, permafrost, you understand all of those things. And uh, it is sinking. And typically you have to re-level and lift these buildings every couple years. Um, and now it has been 11 or 12 years since anything's been done. And there's massive retrofitting that needs to happen if we're going to turn it into essentially a, a biblical training center for the region. We believe this will become the, the epicenter, the, the crossroads that we talked about for those 56 villages. Uh, we've got four uh, team members that are living there right now. We believe we're going to have a whole nother group moving into that, that town itself. We have 17 in the region with another 10 slotted to go there. We have 27 people working in that region in the next six months, and it's only going to grow. Listen, church, I believe in the next 10 years, the Lord has said we're going to have 200 workers in the villages of Alaska. Amen. That will change the state. Thank you, Pastor Paul. Wayne's going to pray for us. Thank you, Pastor Paul, for casting that vision here at Rock Church. Ushers, at this time, would you come forward? Congregation, would you please stand with me as we prepare to pray? Pastor Paul was sharing with us this morning, 47 ministries God has given him the shepherd over in Alaska. There's one thing you know without even hearing his message this morning, when you hear that God has given a man 47 ministries to shepherd over. You know he can't do it by himself. Congregation, would you please pray for the Burkharts? Not just today, we're about to do it now, but just continue to lift them up in prayer. As he said earlier, there's some information out there. Grab that card, put it on your refrigerator, lift up the Burkharts. They, they won't be able to do it by themselves. Amen. You know, I looked at that map. I heard he was coming in from Fairbanks, Alaska. You can pretty much find the dot in Fairbanks, Alaska pretty easily, but you've seen he was several hours away. Think about how difficult it is to find Fairhaven, Michigan on a map. Amen. And I wonder as he's asking God, God, how is this going to happen? How is this? 
how is this building going to get paid for? How are we going to put the addition? How are we going to continue to, to serve these wonderful people of Alaska? Somehow he made it here to Rock Church. I don't know what that sounds like, but it probably is something like I've got some sons and daughters that are learning to live open-handed, that their hearts have been made soft. They're learning to follow my ways and expand my kingdom. That's why Mr. Burkhart, Pastor Burkhart is here this morning. It's not by happenstance. It's because of what God sees in each one of us. That's the tip of the spear, ladies and gentlemen, around the four corners of this world, people willing to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And you got to hear it firsthand. So please keep him in prayer. Keep his family. Keep his ministry in prayer. And that sound that you hear right now, that's opportunity knocking. I heard it said that you'll never fail a test with Jesus Christ. You'll just continue to get it administered over and over again. As God's touching your heart right now to open your hand for this kingdom builder project and so many more that we've had, just place it before him. And now if you feel comfortable, would you lift your hand towards Pastor Paul and the mission field that God is pointing him to? And let us pray. Heavenly Father, we know that you're the king of all kings, dear Lord. We know, for we can see it in our lives, that we are a blessed people, dear Lord. Our children are blessed, and the people in this room, generations and generations will be blessed. And we thank you that the feet of a man like Pastor Paul, that they are blessed to bring forth the gospel in this place in Alaska, dear Lord. And dear Lord, just touch our hearts right now. Dear Lord, just magnify what we will give right now to forward your gospel message, and dear Lord, place upon it our very best guest, gift, dear Lord, the very best that we can give. Place it upon our hearts, dear Lord, and magnify it 30, 60, 100-fold. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said amen. Stay standing while the ushers are giving the, collecting the offering, and Pastor Paul's going to finish. Thank you for your investment in what's going on in Alaska. But as I started this message, I believe that this morning is not about that, but it's about what God wants to do in your life. Do not allow the conviction, and that's a good thing, the conviction of the Holy Spirit to escape this morning. Some of you, from the moment I began to tell that first story, you're like, oh, Lord, let me come to the altar. I need to encounter Jesus. Right? Anybody? That was me. I want to make space for that this morning. Um, if you could just bow your heads and close your eyes with me, I, I do want to ask this question. If you've been with us this morning, and I've been talking about the spiritually dead and dying, and that represents you, meaning you do not have a relationship with God, and you may not understand everything I've said, or, but you do recognize that there is a God and that he loves you and that he made a way for you to be in relationship with him. The Bible says essentially that there's, it's, it's not cheap, it's simple, but you have to believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. He's the son of God. And when you do that, the Bible tells us that we begin a relationship with him. We 
are reconciled to him and that begins our journey. So I just wanna ask this question. If you're here this morning and you need to reconcile your life with God, you need to begin that relationship. Can you just raise your hand and, and look at me? Just let me catch you, is there anyone? Okay. Yeah, thank you, Jesus. Anyone else? Thank you, Jesus. We're going to open up these altars, and I, I want to do basically very similar to what you do each week. On the left side, and my brother that, that raised his hand, I'd love you, along with anybody else that wants prayer. I think there's a prayer team that can come and help us um, and, and begin to walk through what it means uh, to walk with Jesus or to wrestle through what it means to start living your life on mission for him. And then on the right, for those that just wanna seek God, I believe that there are those in this room this morning that, that have felt the call of God on your life. Meaning you might be young, you might be old. One of the things that I'm convinced of is that it doesn't matter how old you are, God can redirect your path and he can reorganize you, whether that's for Alaska or for the Middle East or for Europe or for Africa or for China, it doesn't really matter, or for Michigan. But you need to reorient your life to start defending the spiritually dead in your life. For those around you, your friends, your neighbors, your coworkers, your family. And you need to come find a place of prayer I want to make that open for you. I'm going to pray. Pastor Steve's going to close the service here in a minute. But I'm going to pray, and that's going to be our opportunity to begin to move, uh, to find a space at the altar and just begin to talk to Jesus. Lord, we love you. God, please do not let these words, not my words, but your scriptural words, the principles, the truth of this story that we find in your word, Lord God, let it, let it be buried deep in our hearts. God, do not let us walk out of here without the conviction that we need to love the unlovable, that we need to be the ones to move, that we don't need to wait for people to come to us, but we need to move into their lives, Lord, that we need to be willing to, to, to go through difficult things, to fight, to struggle, to wrestle, Lord Jesus, and that we cannot give up. We're here because someone didn't give up on us. Jesus, be with us as we go from this place, Lord, and help this community God, help this community change the world from Fairhaven, Michigan. We love you, Lord, in your name. Why don't you come? I'll be down here as well as the team, and we'll just be praying for our time together. Let's give a rock thank you to Pastor Burkhart. But like he said, if you raised your hand, come on down, prayer team, come on down here now. We are, we are not ashamed. We love to celebrate with those who surrender their lives to Jesus. This is a party time. So as the worship team leads us in worship, uh, again, as Pastor said, you want somebody to pray for you, doesn't matter what the need is. Don't let that stop you. Just come forward. Prayer team will be here. But if you want to just lock yourself in with God for a few minutes, take the time you're here. Come and have fellowship with God. In Jesus' name, amen. That concludes this week's podcast. To stay up to date with all things Rock Church, you can find us on Facebook and on Instagram as Rock Church MI.